Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Podcast listeners, Al Martin here, Making Data Simple. I've got an interesting one for you today. I'm with Mike Kading, uh, the CEO of Norhart. I just jump right in, see how that works. He designs, builds, and rents apartments. <laughs> Many of you in the technology sphere are saying, what? Well, uh, Mike and team are transforming the way apartments are built and managed by incorporating technologies and efficiencies that have already revolutionized other industries. Well, not every industry. I think he's out in front of some industries because I've got a friend, by example, that sells machines that I keep telling him, you know, industrial machines that he's going to have to transform here pretty quickly or that the world's going to pass him by. So you've got quite the story though. I have done my research and if I could say, I'm going to give a little bit of the story and then you can add the color, but I know this is a family business. You started a few years and then tragically your dad unexpectedly passed away and you, you took on the business even struggled to the point where you were shut down, I believe. Don't let me put words in your mouth. And it, you had to change the way construction is done. So first of all, so sorry for your loss. Not only do, do you lose a family member, but then you've got to maintain a business and individuals that rely on this business. I know that your mission is to solve America's housing shortage or your passion is to solve America's housing shortage by transforming the way apartments are built and managed. And in doing so, improving the way we all live. Welcome, uh, Mike. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to dig into it. I'd like to hear your version. What's, what's your history? What's your experience? Yeah, as you, as you said, as a company, we're working to solve America's housing affordability crisis. Really, the core, how you do that is about driving down the cost of construction. And that requires data, requires innovative thinking to solve those problems. But if I take a step back to answer your question, you know, my parents started this business. It was a very small business. We grew it uh, over time. I remember growing up as a kid with a hammer in my hand, helping build some of these small buildings. And then I went off to college and wanted nothing to do with the business, but eventually worked past my own ego, jumped into the business. And shortly after my dad unexpectedly passed away. It was horrible, terrible experience. But looking back, there was some value in it because I didn't know the, the universe of real estate all that well. And so I could start questioning things. I wasn't tied down to the way things were supposed to be done. And when we started looking at other industries like manufacturing, they've improved substantially. In fact, 760% over the past 60 years were construction has done virtually nothing. And the, what we started doing is simply applying the technologies and, and the techniques of these other industries and applying it to our own with tremendous success. And now we're driving down costs currently by as much as 20 to 30%. And our dream is to get it down by 50%. But imagine what that means. It means someday your rent or your mortgage payment could be half. Do you pass that those savings on to the, the, the customer or do you get more profit or is it a little bit of both? That's a great question. We're trying to optimize for solving housing affordability nationwide. To do that, we need to scale up and we need to build out the infrastructure to do that well. And so what we're doing is we're taking those profits and putting it into the system that builds housing. 
You know, Elon Musk talks about how it's hard to produce a car, but it is 10 to 100 to 1,000 times harder to produce a system that builds cars. And so we're taking those profits, putting it into building the system, scaling up that system to produce so many units in the marketplace that over time, prices start coming down, not just for our own residents, but for everyone nationwide. So that that's the overall strategy. So so back up for a second. What is your education? What, what did yeah. you major in in college, by example? Computer science and mathematics and management. So I love data. I love uh, I love programming. The whole whole computer world is great. And you didn't have an intention at first to assume the family business. But you did. This is before your dad passed. How 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 long were you with the business before he he passed away? Uh, it was about three or four years, uh, and then he passed away. And then how long how long you've been CEO of the business now? Uh, it's about ten years. Ten years. So you're doing yeah. something right. Yeah. And you've been on like I mean I was looking at CNN, all the different kinds of shows in terms of your innovative ways of solving problems versus I guess traditional methods. Yeah, we've been on uh, CBS, we've been on ABC, Wall Street Journal, you know, all the big players, because uh, I think there's such a desperate need to solve this problem. And I think it's an industry that's just been stagnant for far too long. And so we're working to solve that. When you take this over, you're dealing with family issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, I know that like you, you struggled at first. Can you talk about that struggle and then how you turn that dilemma into opportunity? Yeah. So I remember after my dad passed away, we were working to get approval from a city and uh, it was tough. We got approval. We got started building the building and they ended up shutting me down twice. And the reason was because they look at me and say, Hey, Mike, you're some pipsqueak kid. You don't know what you're doing. You know, you don't know what you're doing. And in many regards, they were right as much as I hate to say it looking back, but we really pushed hard through that. And I remember the end of the project, it was terrible. We uh, we had a water leak in one of our main water mains that was you know, thousands of feet long, buried 15 feet in the ground. We had to find a pinhole leak somewhere in that. And I was out in my nice clothes, out in the ditches, digging away, looking for this water leak with the excavation crew. And eventually we found it. And just a few days before we're supposed to open, the city staff comes out and says, there's no way you guys are going to open this building. And that was tough. And we worked through the night every day that week. And then we opened up that building. Uh, in fact, the city staff came out and took a look at the building. They had about half a dozen inspectors, about a, a half a day inspection. They looked at every nook and cranny of that building. And at the very end, the head building official in the basement pulled me aside and said, Mike, you know, and this is tough. We were really hard on you. But looking at the result we have here, this is honestly one of the next nicest buildings that we have in our city. It was so relieving to hear that's like that. a win, right? <laughs> yeah, that that we could actually do this because so much of me was fearful. Like, can I do what needs to be done to make this happen? So that's the dark side of of not having that experience. But the positive side is we could start changing everything. Wow. So did you have an epiphany along the way where you were like, "All right, enough's enough. We're going to transform this business." And, you, and you're going to instrument the mission and the passion that you have in terms of tackling the housing shortage. I got to believe, though, there was something in there that, I don't know, you tell me, did a light switch go off at some point or was it more gradual? You know, there were a few key steps. 
um, before really solidifying what we're able to do. I think one of the key steps was recognizing that this industry is very segmented. And so you've got different people, like a different company that does your plumbing, a different company that does the electrical, a different company that coordinates the construction. You've got dozens of companies that work on one building. And at the end of the building, they all disappear and they go somewhere else, right? And it's a very ineffective way to work. In fact, if a construction company were to produce cars, you'd have a different company installing the windshield, a different company installing the door, and a different company installing the wheel. And of course, the wheel company, they would be delayed on another project. And when they did come out, they would be irate because they could only work on one car at a time. So you'd be shut down. It would be terrible. So manufacturing looks at us and says, we're crazy. We're back in the Stone Age. And so we started bringing that work in-house. And I remember one of the first steps to that was we were doing, we had a plumbing contractor we'd worked with for a number of years. And he came to me and said, Mike, I know this is exactly the same building. We're building again but well, we're going to triple your bid, your price from the last building that you did. That was exactly the same. Like, I, I just can't afford that. I had to find some way to solve this. And so we bought a bunch of plumbing books and we ended up hiring a, a plumber and just figured it out on our own. And it was terrible. We were awful at first, but that was sort of a trigger. We started realizing that we can start saving some of the profit margin each of the developers have. And then when we started bringing all the work together, we could get people in sync and we could do things that you can't normally do in construction. A very simple example is the, uh, the assembly line. <laughs> Manufacturing has revolutionized things using an assembly line, taking a product and moving it down a line. But how in the world could you do that with a building? You can't take a building and move it down a line. No, but what you can do is you can take the person and move them through the building. And so right now in our buildings, every five hours, all the trades, all the teams move by one unit. If you look at the end of our building, every five hours, we have a brand new apartment unit that's produced. And so it's, it's things like that that we can start piecing together as a result of that, that step that we took. Look, I got a lot of questions on that, the, the <laughs> assembly line, as you say, but I'll, I'll come back to that in just a minute. How much have you grown the company since you took it on? Yeah, we're, um, we're over 10 times the size of when I took it on. Nice. Just apartments? Or are you doing all kinds of different construction? Just apartments. Engagers? We're just staying focused on that. It's part of the way of reducing costs is not being spread too thin. Look, I'm getting ready to build a house right now and I get it. The best builders tend to be the ones that have the best contractors. I mean, you got to mm. find those that have folks that, that are going to work. They're going to show up on time that have the skills some builders out there that, you know, are, are piecing and pulling, or I'd build a house myself if, if I thought I had the right contractors. You must have the right skills, the right talent. But not only that, tell me again, you know, hit me at this assembly line approach again with the individual. I got to make sure I understand this. Yeah. So we take a building and we break it into smaller chunks. For simplicity, let's call them apartment units. Each team will be working in one particular apartment unit. There might be uh, almost a hundred different teams in a particular building. And then every five hours, the clock changes and they shift by one unit. The team behind them shifts by one unit. The team behind that shifts behind one unit. Everyone snakes through the building by one unit. What do you by, mean one unit? Sorry to interrupt. What's a yeah, unit? An apartment unit. So like apartment oh, okay. 101 on the first floor and then apartment 102 and then apartment 103. What and if they're, they're not shift. done in five hours though? So at the end, 
It's like a, it's like an assembly line for a car. At the end, you see a new car coming off the line every 55 seconds at Toyota. You can see at the end of our building, every every five hours is a brand new apartment unit. It's not that one apartment unit takes five hours. It's that we produce a new one every five hours. But for any one apartment, it might take 50 days to complete from start to finish. Where did the five hours come in? It must have some kind of, why not four? Why not uh, six? Because we keep reducing it, right? So we happen to be at five hours today. We're hoping to get it down. I mean, I'm hoping to get it down to two hours within the next year. And then I want to get down to down to minutes. And so we're starting to do that somewhat. And when we talk about the world of data, actually all of our construction teams have uh, like iPads and stuff on site. And they actually enter in, they can actually track where they're at down to the minute. And so we're starting to get to that that uh, that level of, of detail. And we want to improve the, the cycle times down to that level as well. So still not getting it. Going back to your, yeah. your previous, you have plumbers, right? Yep. I presume. Are they all in-house then? So you don't yes. do any contracting or do you or do you do contracting for some stuff and then have most 80% in-house or how does that work? It's almost entirely in-house. It's very hard to do this if if you have contractors. Yeah, because then the, they're on their own time frame. Exactly. <laughs> I want to come out within the next yeah. week or two. And I, and I tell them, I want them exactly at 12.55 to be out and done with their work. But does that pressure result in compromised quality in some way? Because no. look, I got to get done. I got to get done. Well, I'm just going to finish this. Uh, not at all. In fact, you improve quality because you have certain standards that you need to meet within each one of those little pieces. To give you some flavor of it, um, drywallers are a really good example. They want an entire floor cleared out <laughs> and, uh, and they want to do an entire floor at a time. And so there's a lot of space there of work, uh, parts of the building that no work is being done because the drywallers want this whole space open to them. They, if they miss something or do something wrong on that floor, they're out now on another job site. I've got to call them back to take a look at that floor. So I, I don't, I have a whole floor before I fix something. So they may have done 20 or 30 different units all the wrong way that if you do it unit by unit, you can actually catch it immediately within that system. And then also just bringing things in house, your own staff care a lot more. I had drywallers. There's certain walls that require two layers of drywall. The first layer has got to be the same quality as the layer on top that you can see. I've had drywallers attach the first layer as if they're preschoolers. They just piece pieces together. It's a totally uh, terrible uh, result. So when you have your own team, you actually care a lot more as well. Let me see if I can restate that back to you. Through the the scheduled times, the consistency that you need to have, and they know what they're up against, then they're able to say, all right, I've got to keep this standard of quality high so I can meet the timeline. And also, you know, I know where I'm going to be next time. So any or tomorrow or whatever, and I've got to, I've got to finish this off. So there's no shoddy work to start or else you set a wrong foundation. You can't meet the timelines. Is that something like what you're talking about? Exactly. It's exactly like an assembly line for a car. In Toyota, they only get 55 seconds to do the work. It doesn't mean the quality is less. They actually get really good at that little niche of work, screwing off those five bolts, right? Continuously through that process. There's other things that you we do and put in place to ensure that quality. And one, Toyota would call it the Andon cord, but it's just, it's just raising a red flag, saying, hey, I got a problem. And people then swarm that issue quickly because we know we only got 55 seconds to solve that problem before the line shuts down. Uh, where you don't have that same level of attention if you don't have a system in place to do it well. 
taking this a bit further, you've got yeah. the plumbers, you've got the drywallers. Uh, I presume plumbers don't do any drywall work. <laughs> drywallers do do plumber work. You've got this very specialized and you, can you have more than one group in a unit at a time or do you do one group at a time until they're finished as they go through the, the five hours? Uh, yeah, so different trades can support each other. We do some degree of cross-training because things happen, right? And you need some flexibility in the system. Otherwise, your entire line gets shut down really quickly. But um, different teams can work in the same unit as long as they're a part of the same trade. We try not to have multiple trades in one space at one time because uh, that just be, it becomes too much to coordinate. But if you're on the same team, same wider team, the sub teams can kind of be in the same unit at the same time. So we actually break not, we don't think about it as units. We actually think about it as batches and a batch can be within one unit. We can have multiple batches per unit. Describe a yeah. unit to me. Is it an apartment unit or is it yes. a piece of the apartment or it's the whole apartment? So a unit is one apartment unit. It's one dwelling that you would live in. It's, it would have one apartment door, you know, uh, it's what you would normally consider to rent from an apartment landlord. The sub part of a unit we call batches. And so we'll take a unit and actually break it down into two or three batches. And when we're doing our, our, our um, scheduling, we'll schedule it based upon batches. But to keep things simple for the audience, you can just think about it like units. So you're saying you're completing the unit in five hours? Yes. Did I understand that correctly? Uh, we have another, we have a new apartment unit coming off of our line every five hours. The Amount of time it takes for any one apartment to be completed, the all the tasks might be 50 days. So okay. that takes 50 days. But every five hours, another apartment has been completed. So on day one, they start unit one. On day yep. two, they start unit two. On day three, they start unit three. On day 50, they start unit 50. But on day 50, they finish unit one. On day 51, they finish unit two. On day 53, they finish unit three. So every day that, that passes, sense. another apartment gets done. But it still takes 50 days to complete a unit. How'd you come up with this philosophy? I mean, what did it? Where, where did the epiphany and the, the, the methodology come from? Uh, very little like comes from my mind. It's, it's finding the best people in the world and learning from them. So not only our staff that actually invent a lot of new stuff, we've got patents and we've got, uh, they've literally built out construction techniques that literally no one in the world does. But on the flip side, we actually find world experts too. And so one example of a world expert that we work with is Toyota because they, they changed the landscape when it came to manufacturing. So we said, why not reach out to them? And they were really interested in seeing what they could do to help other industries improve their systems as well. So we have, uh, we work a lot with Toyota, which has helped inspire this particular idea. I got to believe people listening, particularly if they're in the manufacturing construction business, there's one big element that I haven't figured out in this equation. Mm. And that is, look, I trust that Mike in Norhart can continue to squeeze these timelines. Uh, I'll do respect to the city. I do not trust the city though, given the processes that they've had in place for years 
that they can keep up with the the timelines that you're on. So I've got to believe, do they not stall this process by getting out for inspections and different things like that? You know, city inspections haven't, we've been able to work through that. There is some wrinkles. There are some kinks. For example, they don't want to be out there every five hours to spec the next apartment unit. Yeah, but I there are techniques we can do to kind of mitigate those issues. Um, I think the bigger thing that causes delay and headaches is things like city council approvals. It's land rezoning. It's approval of projects in general. It's going through planning commission and neighborhood uh, um, feedback on projects. But that is, that's a piece of the cost of construction, but honestly, it's a smaller piece in the grand scheme of things. So those, that earlier approval, those get way out ahead. We've got teams at find sites get approval for them well before we ever bring um, a shovel to the ground. But once the shovel gets there, then we really hit this timeline hard. Where, where's your business located? Yeah, uh, we are in Minnesota. Um, that's where we started and that's where most of our properties are to date. Some of our manufacturing, so we've expanded now into manufacturing as well. We actually produce wall panels. We produce components of the apartments offsite. So some of our manufacturing is in Minnesota. Some of it's actually in Wisconsin. We're expanding our, um, apartments. So the units we're building, we're expanding that now into Texas and we're expanding some of our manufacturing now into Mexico and about 15% of our staff are actually international across the world. So the reason I ask that is I presume that once you start working with a city, they trust your approach, they see it, they probably can get in line a little bit better than like you say, the first day that you're out there saying, what the heck are you guys doing? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. It's that's gonna true. take longer there. Does it provide more of a cookie cutter approach? I don't know that that's bad because it's the same and your quality would go up, but what if I want a custom type of apartment that's unique Maybe there's a lake and I want all the rooms to back and face the lake or whatever. I mean, does it matter in terms of customization or is it you've got your own blueprint and you, you're either in or you're out? So that's important. You've got to keep the power to keep things custom within the world of building. In fact, you're not going to optimize sites if you just pick a floor plan and just drop it in place. It just doesn't, you're going to run into high costs as a result of doing that. So we do provide a lot of flexibility there. In fact, some of our projects are honestly some of the nicest in the state. Our latest project is a $100 million building. It's incredible. New transit line. There's a two-story main entrance that so large it could fit some of our original apartment buildings just in the main entryway. It's incredible. But there are techniques, though, you can still do to maintain or gain the advantages of standardization. For example... Apartment units, you can standardize those. The way that you do your joists and steel joists and stuff inside the units, uh, we can optimize those steel joists. We can do dissertations on exactly the thickness, the, the profile, the shape of those joists, the, the length and the direction they face. Uh, this way we stack units can be pretty dang consistent. Um, so what it does is it creates a set of Lego bricks that we can then assemble into the buildings that we want. We're not starting from total scratch. We got Legos that make things easier to do uh, and to build these buildings. Wow. In every industry, mine included, change is difficult. Yeah. I've got to believe there was a, a change hurdle that you had to overcome and probably still overcome if you can, as you continue to evolve and transform 
how did you originally get through that in terms of there had to be a ton of people saying, no, that's not how we do things. Now, this is ridiculous. This guy's trying to do a, a assembly line in the apartment building business. He's, he's lost his damn mind. <laughs> how, how, how do you tackle those and get beyond that? Obviously, you have. So it worked. There had to be some trials and tribulations. Or did you have a unique way of solving that as well? No, we get that all the time. Uh, and this industry is one that people are like, dude, my dad did it this way. My granddad did it this way. My great granddad did it, did it this way. I am going to do it the same way. And I understand that and respect it, but I think that's why our industry has been stuck in a rut for so long. There was a point, you know, probably the number one most important thing I've learned to be successful is that you need to hire and find the world's best people. We actually fly people in from other states to come work during the week and we fly them home on the weekend. We have one guy that Steve Jobs announces the iPhone in 2007. Steve Jobs walks off stage and our employee follows uh, that presentation on that same stage. It's that kind of caliber of person. And I didn't always understand the importance of that. But the moment we made the switch, we went and we were tenacious about hiring the world's best. Things got so much easier. We didn't have nearly the pushback and the resistance. We had people that were excited to change this industry. And that, that's what you have to have. You've got to have the right people. Because if you're fighting your own internal staff on this sort of stuff, you're just dead in the water from the beginning. So who are you hiring then? Obviously, you're hiring people in the trade, mm -hmm. but they got to be innovators in the trade, think yeah. differently. And if you're hiring somebody that got on stage with Steve Jobs, I don't presume that that individual was putting up a lot of sheetrock. <laughs> uh, no, so, that yeah. guy's not in the trade, but the, some of the people who fly across countries are in their trade. Um, for example, precast concrete is a really unique niche of a um, ability. And we will fly, we, there's people in that trade that we fly across country. One thing we've done is we've actually built out an entire recruiting team. I think this was one of the big transformational moments. We are about a hundred people at this point in our career and we ended up hiring 15 recruiters. Wow. Yeah. And so 15% of our staff were recruiters and we started, got rid of the whole notion of people applying to our company. You know, you can still get in that way. But now we actually actively, proactively look for people that are not looking for jobs, build relationships with them over time, then bring them in into our organization. Uh, we do other things, for example. So it's about maybe one in 100 people actually get in that first level. Then after that, we've got a, um, uh, a trial period, actually, for many of the staff. Not everyone, but many of them, where they have, we see how they work. And after two weeks, their coworkers decide if they actually make the team. And so only about 40% of wow, people actually make it that, that cut. And then after that point, we have something called the keeper test, which we stole from Netflix, <laughs> uh, which is basically to say it, the managers are asking if this employee were to leave, how hard would I fight to change their mind? And if the answer is anything short that I would fight tooth and nail to keep them, then they may be the wrong person. Because for us, uh, we don't want to keep average people around. We just want extraordinary people. So even after that, it's still about 50% of the people over the course of another year 
that actually make it all long-term within the organization. But if you put all that energy in place to find the best people, the people left are incredible. They change the game. That's fascinating. I do know the keeper test. I use yeah. the keeper test. I think that's maybe the simplest way of, of judging the performance on somebody. And somebody, they're just, you know, if somebody's not performing, they're just a better fit someplace else. Maybe nothing yeah. against them. You know, I, I get it. Um, how do you, did you say how many people you have in your company today? Yeah, we're about 250 today. 250 today. Almost everything done in-house, correct? Yeah, that's and when, when you hire, what do you look for then? Do you look for the trade first or do you look for mindset first? Uh, values first. So mindset, I suppose you could call that. But we've got our values incredibly well defined. They're a huge part of our culture. Um, I do every orientation outlining those values. We do follow-up orientations. We do annual. It's a, there's a lot that goes into that. But once you've established what those are for your company, that's the first thing we evaluate every single new employee if you don't meet the values, you don't make it any further than that. And it's really tough in our industry. Uh, one of our values is simply to be a genuine human. You'd be shocked at how hard it is to find respectful, kind, nice, vulnerable, open construction workers. Uh, and so that cuts a lot of people out right there. So that's step one. And then step how two. How do you judge on that, if you don't mind? Yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt the step because I want to get the other step. Very important. But how do you how do you make sure someone is genuine at the time? They could say they're genuine. How do you test for that? We use behavioral based interview questions for that part of it. And so it's tell me about a time that you had a challenging experience with a coworker. How did you resolve that? How did you work through that? And so a question like that, I might be looking for um, did they approach the person? What was the language that they used with them? Do they have a high sense of EQ? Do they understand how the other person felt in that situation? So it's things like that. Where if you're using a behavioral interview style question, digging deep into that experience, you can really start to flesh out if someone's kind of BSing you or if they've actually got that knowledge and experience of how to deal with that situation well. And Good then answer. on top of that, if you've got 15 recruiters, that that's half of their time is just to tease out values. They get to be really good over the course of a couple of years of teasing those things out. Are those recruiters incentive-based in terms of how many people get on and stay on, or do you do it differently? No, we actually intentionally have no, no incentive-based pay. Um, okay. That's intentional. And so they, I, I believe the right people want to do the right thing, regardless of what their pay structure is. And so if they get bonuses in another company, we'll just incorporate that bonus as part of their base pay. And then eliminate bonuses. Um, and so, yeah, then they do have metrics. They get to see what percentage of the people they hired on actually made it through all of those later stages we talked about earlier. Uh, and so they're competitive that way. They're watching them to see how well they did. Um, but there's no incentive-based pay. And sorry, I interrupted. You were on step one and you went to step two, but that, that was a great explanation on step one. Love it. So step two you were talking about? Yeah, step two is, then it is skills-based. And so it doesn't work well to bring out someone who lacks skills when you need the skills, right? So we have uh, uh, each trade, each position has a series of questions. It's like a test. We go into depth on the skills and then the test, uh, there's different levels of tests for every position depending upon the level of the person. For example, if they're just an apprentice or if they're a journeyman or if they're a master of that skill set that they're trying to trying to do. 
And that do you have required teach- training after they're on? Do they have required training they have to maintain then since skill skill is a is a, a big factor in, in the performance of your team? Um, so I'll answer that in just a second. One thing I will okay. say though with skill is that we're looking for people who will be who are best in the world of what they do. But it's not always that they have to be best in the world today, as long as they're on a journey to become best in the world. So sometimes we'll hire on people that don't have any skills but we're instead measuring what we believe their capacity to learn and grow and the speed that they can learn and grow. So um, what was your question again? It was, um, do you have any required skills-based learning, like continuous learning expectations once they arrive at your company? So the short answer is no, and intentionally Mm -hmm. not. But why? Well, let's get to value. So our fifth value is to level yourself up So one of the key things we look for is people that are self-motivated and self-driven to improve what they're doing. And here's the magic. What we do instead of having standardized, like this is the things you need to learn, we we have some degree of that. But what happens is those people start asking for what they want to learn and grow in. And so for most of our trades, they have after-work classes where they study the code book. This is a gnarly book. It's like two or three inches thick just for their trade, learning all the like the rules and regulations of what they can and cannot do and how to compute things. But they are so passionate that one of our trades actually stopped doing the after-work class. Again, this was inspired and started by the team members. They stopped doing the after-work class for a little bit because they got busy on something, right? But we just about had a mutiny on that team. They were irate that their foreman stopped providing co-work based classes that was done after work to master their trade. And that's the way I like it. And we, and we want, we want people that want to learn and grow and then we will provide them what they want rather than me telling them what they need to know. Sounds great. Could you repeat the values in total again? Just go down the list. Yeah. So we have achieve great things. Uh, Then we have be a genuine human we have level yourself up. Uh, we have improved something every day. I like it. Simple, but meaningful. So where, where do you, I mean, this is a softball question, but it's going to set up the next question. So how would you evaluate your talent compared to the industry? Top tier? I mean, absolute top tier, not even close. You say it's 80% someplace. And there's a reason I'm asking that. So, I mean, I just, I'm sure you're going to say it's top tier, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Well, I'll be uh, I'll be honest. I think there's certain teams in our trades that are absolutely top tier, like best in the world. They they actually go and they stand up against the United States government on some things and say, "You guys computed your codes wrong, your calculations wrong. Here's how to do it right," and they get them to change it. Uh, and they're inventing new ways to do things. I think there's other teams that um, they're more in the early stages of that growth. So I think it varies, but. But I know what great teams look like, and I will not stop until every team is at literally world-class level. I love it, but here's the here's the question that follows it. Yeah. And I know there's some simple answers, but I'm asking you to be genuine, which I know you will be because that's yeah. your value, right? Uh, how do you afford that? Meaning, you know, you get people a top tier, they command top tier prices, yep. which you're in the construction business, you've got to manage P&L, not to mention you're going to get threats of competitors wanting to take the top tier 
uh, talent away at the same time. How do you manage that? Mm, great question. Uh, I'll answer the kind of the second part of your question first, which is how do we have people reaching out? And it's true. Uh, our competitors are reaching out all the time. We get calls from, our teams get calls from recruiters on a regular basis. We tell people to take the phone call because we want what's best for them. None of our pay or benefits, all of it vests immediately. Nothing is there to keep them trapped or locked in. I want to earn the right every single day for them to choose to work here instead of somewhere else. And then we tell them we never want pay or benefits to be the reason why you leave. So if you find out something is better at a competitor, they let us know and we make a change not only for them, but for everyone on their team or the wider company if we need to. And that is expensive. So how in the world do you pay for it, right? Especially if you're looking at- <laughs> So far, you're very genuine. I love it. It is expensive. <laughs> so let's hear the answer. <laughs> so the thing that most people fail to understand is that the best people outperform the average by two to five to even 10 times as much. And I have seen it over and over and over again. And so if you're looking at it on a cost per person basis, you're right, it's really expensive. But instead, if you look at it as a cost per unit produced, it's actually the least expensive approach. And not only that, it creates a better culture, you've got less <laughs> human, kind of problems uh, dealing with uh, personalities and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, we find it in the end, it actually saves money because they're that much better. Why doesn't everybody do this? Because it's hard. It's really hard. Um, I mean, I go back to Elon Musk's quote, right? He talks about how it's hard to produce a car. And right now in the apartment and in, in, in the real estate world, people are mostly just producing each building. That's hard to do. But to build out a system and an infrastructure that changes the way an industry is done is so much harder. The Where's idea is simple. The execution is impossible. 